Good Thursday afternoon, guys. I'm Jerry Miller. Thank you kindly for joining us on the I Love Seville show. We very much enjoyed connecting with you guys on all your social channels on this program. Mayor Lloyd Snook is, I'd say, T-minus three minutes away. Love this guy. Um, love his institutional memory. We'll tap into that institutional memory here with the revenue sharing agreement. That's a topic that's come up this week with Albemarle County Supervisor candidates Mike Pruitt and T.J. Fadley, both referencing the revenue agreement in some capacity. Mayor Snook knows the revenue sharing agreement with Albemarle County and the city of Charlottesville, I would say probably better than any elected official um, that's current or active right now. Um, and it's because he's been in this community, you know, maybe, maybe Ann Malik um, may be able to challenge um, Councillor Snook's tenure or time in the community. Besides Ann Malik, I can't, there's not a single other person um, active um, in office. We want to thank Scott Wagner for, for being a part of the show of Scott Wagner Integrated Medicine. Dr. Wagner has your back. I do have a little bit of breaking news for you when it comes to commercial real estate. Um, I'll tell you what, Johnny Pritzloff, and I hope Johnny Pritzloff is watching right now, and Jenny Stoner of Cushman, Cushman Wakefallheimer, they are fantastic commercial brokers. They've done yet another deal in this community. This for the CFA Institute, 915 East High Street. You guys probably know this as the old Martha Jefferson Hospital. 915 East High Street sold for $21,900,000. The CFA Institute sold its um, stake in this building. It was the owner of the building. building to, to, to an LLC. I'll dig into who the principals, the owners of this LLC are, but right now I know it's Low High LLC. Low, L-O dash H-I comma LLC has purchased the old Martha Jefferson Hospital for $21,900,000. Here's the in, two very important um, tidbits besides the sale. CFA, if they sell a building in Charlottesville, you're like, oh my God, they have a lot of people that work here. What's going on here? The good news, CFA has agreed to lease back 47,000 square feet. So the CFA Institute is not going anywhere. That's great for the Charlottesville economy, the Amaral economy, Central Virginia economy. Also good news here, the CFA Institute is committing long-term to this area to stay here. And last tidbit, Low High LLC will build a co-working space um, at the, uh, the old Martha Jefferson Hospital, private executive office space and co-working. Executive office space is my game. I know it well. I think there's certainly tailwinds and momentum for that model, executive office space. So the nitty-gritty, the breaking news, you're first hearing here, CFA has sold its building the old Martha Jefferson Hospital for $21,900,000 to an LLC, L-O-H-I, LLC, low high. It kind of makes me nostalgic of some of the streets or areas you see in Manhattan. Soho is south of Houston. Um, you see, what are some other ones? Nolita is north of Little Italy. Noho, north of Houston. Tribeca, the triangle below Canal Street. So I think what this LLC is trying to do is build the brand low high, the lower portion of high street, low high. Um, I'll dig into that. And then two other tidbits, and then we get to Mayor Snook. Red Pump Kitchen is now for lease, and the restaurant equipment is for, for sale. The asking price for Red Pump Kitchen monthly is 8600 a month. It's a good chunk of money. 
Now, it's a hell of a space in the downtown mall. It's an end cap. And the restaurant equipment is for sale. So that business is now closed. The lease is expired. And it's a primo spot on the downtown mall that's available. Red Pump Kitchen, 8600 a month asking. And Benning Del Luca's Pizza is moving from Midtown on West Main. The scuttlebutt in my circles has it moving to the UVA corner. Um, Judah Wickhauer, let's welcome a man we love and respect. I'll go ahead and say it. I will say in the last 23 years, the most important elected um, official, you and Michael Payne, because of what you got, what the ship you had to steer in the right direction. I mean, it was heading to a jagged, rocky coast with sirens calling you to dangerous, precarious waters. And you said, we're going to be the, the lighthouse and we're going to redirect the ship to safer, more calm waters. And now those waters, I would venture to say, and Sam Sanders used it as an announcement, are boring consistent and predictable waters. We're hoping. We love it. Good afternoon, Mayor Snook. Good afternoon. Um, we love having you here. Um, Sam Sanders, new city manager, your thoughts? Well, first of all, I'm absolutely delighted with where we wound up in this case. Uh, we had had one goal, sort of primary goal, was stability. And that could have meant uh, Michael Rogers continuing. But he decided for his own reasons that he had, I mean, basically we've had him on loan from D.C. for the last year and a half. His family is there, his wife's there, his house is there. He felt there were things he had to get back to there. Um, and but, and the, the downside to him would have been that he probably wasn't going to be a 10-year city manager. He might be a 5-year city manager, but uh, he wasn't going to be a 10-year city manager. And I was kind of hoping we would get a 10-year city manager at least. Uh, and so when circumstances all worked out that, that Mr. Rogers backed out and said he, he, couldn't, he couldn't go on with the search, uh, that we, we basically, you know, Sam was there and delighted that he is because he, he is exactly, in terms of stability, in terms of personal characteristics, he's exactly what we're looking for. Uh, in terms of his knowledge now of the city. You know, Sam, Sam has been in an interesting position in the last couple of years. He's been deputy city manager. I often will ask him, okay, Sam, what about the history of, of such and such? And he'll say, I, I don't know, let me go look. And he would say, you know, he, he would say, I've been playing like Indiana Jones. I've been doing an archaeological dig. I've been trying to find the documents behind why it is. How did we get to this point 20, 30 years ago? And in many cases, it would be something that I knew just from my own dim memory, but I didn't have the documents to prove it. I couldn't, you know, but he's been able to find it. So the point is that he, he knows exactly what he's getting into in terms of the difficulty of having to modernize our record keeping and modernize our uh, institutional libraries and things like that. And so for a whole lot of reasons, he's just a, a wonderful choice. So... I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm applauding you guys. Michael Payne, I applaud. Uh, Mr. Pinkston, Mr. Wade, uh, Ms. Perrier. I think um, uh, Cena McGill gets some props here as well. I mean, you got Michael Cotches, who I think the world of. I mean, it's been six, seven months, so we got to be continue to be patient with him, but he's riding the ship. Yep. You guys have made government boring again, a bell we've been trying to ring on this show for a long time. Uh, no more front page New York Times, you know, uh, poetry, and I'll leave it at that. Um, and you're behind the scenes, and we know what to expect. 
Michael Rogers, Sam Sanders, how close was Mr. Rogers to being this, the city manager here? And then the follow-up question is, um, do we truly think we could get a decade out of Mr. Sanders? I mean, if we get 10 years out of Mr. Sanders, that's nostalgic of, what, Cole Hendricks and Gary O'Connell. Right. Well, uh, a couple things. First of all, uh, we had not taken any formal votes or anything, but certainly uh, Mr. Rogers was one of the finalists. Uh, and I'll tell you, we had a couple of other finalists from outside the area who I thought were very strong candidates. And I, one of the things that had pleased me in all of this process was how many people there were out there who were not scared off by what they thought they knew from the internet, uh -huh. who were willing to delve enough. And part of this has to do with the recruiting firm we had who would reach out to these people and say, here's a job you really ought to think about. Yes, I know you've heard a lot of bad vibes about Charlottesville, but this is why that's not the current situation. And so the recruiting firm became our advocates with a lot of these people to get these folks to apply. And the people we were getting who wanted to apply were people who said, I think I can make a difference here. I think I can do something that people will say five years, ten years from now, that person, I personally, I made a difference. And, that, and that's a sort of a can-do spirit that I think most people in city governance have deep down inside. Sometimes it gets covered up or layered over with bureaucratic nonsense, but deep down inside, they are where they are because they want to make a difference. And we got those people willing to apply, and, and the fact that we wound up with an internal candidate should simply reflect how strong that internal candidate was. One of the uh, one of our, our consulting people on this said that both of our deputy city managers, both Ashley Marshall uh, and, um, and Sam Sanders, were superstars in the making, was their phrase. So we got one of our superstars. Hope we can hold on to the other one. Uh, but they're, they're both excellent folks. thousand percent. thousand percent agree with you. Um, and those deputy managers, deputy city managers, were thrown into the fire which probably helped um, escalate their star power and make it more legitimate because they were in the, in the proverbial fire. Well, they had challenging jobs, and we kept challenging them more. Right, right. And, and they kept coming through. So. Um, how much do you think, what, I don't want to use the word tryout, but most, most guys, guys with Mr. Sanders, I mean, was, did he have almost a tryout or an extended spraining? Or extended, extended training period on well, the I, would, I would certainly think of it as a spring training. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons a year and a half ago, when when we we agreed that we were going to get a an interim city manager through the Robert Bob Group, uh, and one of the I mean the, one of the reasons for that, frankly, was we couldn't get somebody on our own who was willing to come. Remember, we had the, we thought we had somebody appointed, and then we voted for him, and before he could get here, he backed out. Mr. Woolley. Uh, Woolley, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that was, that left a really bad taste in everybody's mouth. And so we said, the Robert Bob Group, find us an interim city manager. And they found us three candidates, we interviewed the three of them, uh, and we opted for Michael Rogers partly because one of the things that he felt was very important for the job that he would be taking was that he would be a mentor to our deputy city managers. 
that he his work with the uh, ICMA, the International City Managers Association, uh, with the uh, National Association of Black Urban Professionals. I, I can't remember exactly what the acronym stands for, but um, the, with these groups, is he has been trying to to mentor deputies, uh -huh. uh, and it was important to him that he mentor Sam, that he mentor Ashley. And I think he, he really did a very good job of that. We intended it, not specifically that he would be training his replacement, but that he would be training two very able deputies. Uh, and then when the time came and one of them you know, was to step up, he was ready. Well, um, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to see Mr. Sanders in action. I hope we get a decade out of, out of him. He certainly seems to have yet another calming presence in City Hall. I mean, how about an update on City Hall? Is it in the last meeting, <laughs> $1.5 million, if memory serves? And just I know a that's a rough number. Yeah. yeah. Allocated. I mean, we had some water damage here. Well, so just so folks will understand, there was a bathroom on the second floor on Friday afternoon that apparently a urinal continued to run. And I think it's one of these things where it, it, it runs once you step away from it. And then, of course, it's supposed to cut itself off after 15 seconds or right. however long. And apparently it kept running and running and running and running and running all weekend until people came back on Monday morning and said, good God. And what happened was the water, of course, had run out of the urinal, on the floor, under the door, down the hallway. The lowest point on the second floor is city council chambers. Because if you know, it, it, you're starting at the, the floor level and then you drop down about four, three or four feet. And so there were, um, I don't know, a couple inches of water anyway standing there. It's not a swimming pool. It doesn't hold water. It's got cracks in it. So the water was seeping down into the treasurer's office, commissioner of revenue's office, all that area, and just a real mess. So we don't know exactly what it's going to take. Uh, it's going, almost all of it will be covered by insurance. There's a $25,000 deductible on the policy. So in the long run, it'll cost us $25,000 plus whatever changes we decide we want to make along the way that are upgrades to the situation. Now, the city hall, the city council chambers is an area that people have identified as this area needs help for a long time but there has not been a reason to mess with it. Now we've got a reason that we have to mess with it, and it may be a time to sort of rethink what we've got there and what we need. Because uh, one of the discussions we kept having during COVID era was how inadequate that space was for a whole lot of reasons, not just for COVID purposes, but for other purposes as well. I am not an architect. I have not studied the issue in any detail, but it would not surprise me if we end up uh, six months from now with a very different looking council chambers. So the stopgap, I, I, I spoke to some folks over at, over at yeah. the stopgap is the Parks and Rec's office? For, yeah, I think that's for the Commissioner of Revenue's office. Yeah. Uh, one, either Commissioner of Revenue or Treasurer is going there. The other one is going to the transit center across the street. Okay. Okay, so it's kind of all hands on deck. Um, I, a lot we want to cover with you. We love the institutional memory. Um, why don't we just start with revenue sharing agreement. It's come up twice this week. Um, Michael Pruitt and TJ Fadeley um, each brought it up in some capacity. 
Pruitt is going to be on the Board of Supervisors, Scottsville District. He's running unopposed. TJ Fatally is being challenged by um, B. Lapisto Kirtley. She's the incumbent. Um, we could just take it off. Yeah, thank you. Um, B. Lapisto Kirtley is the incumbent, but I think TJ Fatally has a decent shot of shot of race. Both reference the revenue sharing agreement. You know this probably better than anyone in this uh, community, this agreement. Why don't I just start revenue sharing agreement open-ended and follow your lead? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that it is an agreement. It is a contract. Uh -huh. uh, and not, you can't have one side just deciding we're going to change the contract. But the other piece to it that we have to keep in mind is that the legislative landscape has changed. And so it's not like we can go back to some point in 1982 and say, we're just turning the clock back 40 years and we're going to start all over again. Uh, the history is this. Virginia law up until about 1984 was <clears throat> that if the city wanted to annex some part of the county, it could do so with the permission of a court. A court would figure out whether various criteria were met and so on. And would also, there would be some measure of compensation for the county for the loss of tax base for the investment that the county would have put into uh, streets and, and potentially even schools and things like that. <coughs> so, um, and the idea was that there would be compensation to the county for those improvements. That is something that would always be a matter of negotiation, and ultimately, if it had to, the court could, could make a decision how much money would be, would be required. The procedure was that the, the city would file a petition in the court to annex certain part of the county. The, my recollection is that in 1981 or 82, uh, the, the, the city had filed a petition that could conceivably have put everything inside the Rio to hydraulic semicircle uh, as as possible annex targets. Wow! So that's massive revenue. Yeah, but in in fact, what w was most likely was the area that is now Stonefield and much closer in. So okay. it probably would not have gone out as 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 far as that, simply because the compensation would have been too much. Okay. Uh, and so the folks who have looked at this issue uh, and studied how much tax revenue the county has gotten from those properties that it did not lose uh, have concluded uh, that the county has actually prospered by keeping those properties even after the revenue sharing payment is made. So if the, re revenue share, if the revenue sharing payment is $15 million, give or take, this year, uh, let's say the tax revenues from those areas might be 16 or 18 or $20 million. And Neil Williamson has done a very detailed estimate year over year over year and concluded that, that in fact, this, the county has benefited from the revenue sharing agreement. The personal side of this for me was in 1981, I was applying to be on the Planning Commission, and I was interviewed by John Conover, who was on City Council at that point, um, and he asked me, you know, why do you want to be on the Planning Commission? I said, well, one of the reasons I want to be on the Planning Commission is because I expect we're going to be doing some more annexation, and I want to be a part of the planning for the area that would be annexed. And John gave me sort of a half smile and said, well, supposing we didn't annex, what then? And I don't remember what my answer was, but that was, that was the first indication, if looking backward on it, 
it is clear to me that they were already beginning to have these negotiations that a few months later would turn into the revenue sharing agreement. And that's an example, an example of both city and county uh, leadership looking forward, of looking at, you know, it's, it's, it's not a good idea to promote more warfare uh, between city and county. There was a, a point there when, when the, uh, the, the folks who wound up uh, going out to Fashion Square wanted to build something that is basically what is now Seminole Square. And the city was, was, not, was not up for that. They didn't, they didn't want to lose the, the, the open land, I guess it was. And so folks went out to Fashion Square instead, and, and it was built in Fashion Square. And there were some people in the city of Charlottesville who said in this sort of us versus them mentality, okay, county, you gave them stuff, screw you, we're not going to go out to Fashion Square. And who for years did not go to Fashion Square. But once the revenue sharing agreement was in place, they said, okay, now we can, now go, we can go out to Fashion Square. Now we can recognize that we are one community. We, we prosper together. And that's a very important thing for both city and county leadership to understand. Um, Neil Williamson is watching the program. We love when you chime in, Neil, with perspective. Scott Aaronworth, a defense attorney in Virginia Beach, says, Mayor Snook, you're doing a great job. Also, I love how you are a lawyer and you represent our profession very well. Uh, he's also excited for the Laura Foner interview we have scheduled tomorrow at 1230. Vanessa Parkhill giving both you and Michael Payne props. She says, while Michael is openly socialist-leaning, he is a calming personality on council, say with Mayor, Mayor Snook. And these two voices have been much needed, and council and government is much more stable now, so thank you very much, giving you props. It's so funny, the interpretation, like anything in life, the interpretation of the revenue-sharing agreement, depending on who you talk to, some folks say Almora County's getting the better deal of it. Other folks say City of Charlottesville's getting the better deal of it. Like, I think both win. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, why do you think both win? Well, the county wins because they get stability. And stability you know, is not purely a matter of the personality sitting in the chairs. It's a matter of the overall environment. Uh, they know that they have certain areas that are always going to be theirs, that they're not going to lose by annexation. Uh, and, and the agreement, by the way, was that we, that we, the city, agreed not to pursue any further annexation efforts in return for this agreement. And now, a couple of years later, the Virginia General Assembly basically put a, a permanent moratorium on annexation anyway, so to, to an extent it didn't really matter. But if we had not had that agreement made in 81, 82, uh, we might well have had an annexation already in effect before the moratorium would have taken place. So the, the, the benefit for both city and county, number one, stability. Number two, I mean, and the stability means you can plan. If you don't have that degree of stability, you can't plan. If you're in the county and you don't know uh, whether you're going to have the area that is now Greenbrier Drive, for example, sure. and all those people there, do we plan to have to ha send those kids to a school? Or is that going to be the city's problem? You've got to have some certainty in that. And so it's benefited both sides for that reason. And once we've made the basic financial deal, and I think the basic financial deal is not grossly in favor of one over the other, 
But once we've made the basic financial deal, we can each plan and, and get on with life. I, I love it. I love it. Well said. Um, questions are coming in. I'll get to them, guys. If you put questions in the feed for the mayor, as long as they're respectful, I will relay them live on air. We don't mind being challenged, but they will follow a golden rule mentality. Um, Could I just say one thing? You, you've mentioned uh, Michael Payne. Mm -hmm. and he was my running mate four years ago, and he'll be my running mate again this time around, too. When he and I and, and Cena McGill, the three of us were nominated, uh, and we ran during the campaign, there were many ways in which, although most people will say I am a very liberal person, there are those who said I was the conservative on the ticket. Uh, relatively speaking, perhaps that's true. But one of the things that I found during the, during the course of the campaign, first of all, Michael is a very smart guy. Oh, yeah. And second, he listens. Yeah. And during the course of the campaign, I listened to him and he listened to me, and we both kind of came together a little bit. We kind of moderated each other in, in many ways. And I came to have a great deal of respect for his, his willingness to rethink and willingness to change his mind. And when he, when the first time he said something that I'd been saying earlier, that governance is all about trade-offs, I said, okay, he gets it. That's, that, that's an, important, an important point because everything seems absolute until you actually have to make the votes. I believe Councillor Payne is watching the show right now. Um, you got some props, Councillor Payne, right there from your colleague. And, and I'll second those, those props, Michael Payne. You and I don't always agree on the politics piece, but one thing I can say is you are a calming voice and you do your research and your homework and you understand this city and love this city. And I also say that I've occasionally stolen some of his lines, too. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I see it. I love what you guys are doing. Um, I'll throw Charlottesville and Downtown Mall to you. Um, we both love downtown. Our, our businesses are downtown. Um, I just highlighted that Red Pump Kitchen, now officially for rent. Eddie K of Four Corners Real Estate has the listing. 8,600 square feet a month, or 8,600 dollars a month for Red Pump Kitchen rent and the equipment's for sale. I don't, I have too much respect for you to throw anything from the Hunter Smith debacle to you. Um, but that's opened a number of restaurants, Passiflora, Brasserie Saison, Superset. We're also here in uh, a couple of other restaurants. May be shutting doors here pretty darn soon as line of credit and COVID relief money uh, payments start up again. Um, maybe a State of the Union downtown. I'm, you know, I'm getting a, a smidge nervous um, with some of the vacancies and a little bit um, less foot traffic than I've seen in years past. Your thoughts on any of this stuff? Well, we know, of course, that the downtown mall is the, is the center not only physically but emotionally. It's a heartbeat. For the, for the heart, heartbeat uh, for the city. Uh, when the downtown mall was first constructed 50 years ago, uh, it was out of a recognition that the old Leggett, Leggett's and Miller and Rose were simply not a commercially viable model for downtown any longer. And so we went along with a whole bunch of other places all around the country to this idea of a pedestrian mall. Right now, there are very few pedestrian malls dating back to that time that are still pedestrian malls. One of the reasons is because it takes a lot to maintain it physically, uh, in terms of the emotional commitment of the city to say, yes, this remains important. 
So what do we need to do? Well, first of all, of course, things, things were not perfect before COVID, but they were pretty good before yeah, COVID. Yeah, they were humming. Uh, they were humming, and you know, the, one of the main things for Charlottesville and the main thing for, for downtown has been uh, the tourist trade, the hospitality industry, and restaurants are an important piece of that. Well, COVID knocked all of that all to heck, and I don't know whether the problems that these places are having are still hangovers from the COVID era, but the economics of, of the entire industry have changed, has changed very dramatically. How much you pay your servers, for example, is, a hu- is hugely different. Uh, what your, your overall cost structure is. I mean, most, most of the restaurants on the mall probably raise prices by 30 to 40 to 50 percent uh, for essentially the same dishes. And those of us who love the downtown have sort of said, okay, fine, we'll pay it, but grumble, grumble. Right. <clears throat> but that's not unique to downtown. That's every place. Uh-huh. The entire hospitality industry has changed as we've finally started to pay some of the lower-level people adequately. Uh, but so the economics are different. The break-even points are different. Uh, and for the landlords, I mean, they've got all kinds of problems too. If they're working on credit and their their line of credit has been refinanced at three percent higher, now they've got to look for more rents. What the heck do they do? So the the what we thought was a comfortable situation four years ago is now very much thrown up in the air. How that's, that's a perfect read. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. How that's going to settle out over the next couple of years, I don't know. Uh, but I'm but I'm thinking that what's going to happen is that, and, and this, you know, we sometimes have talked about the uh, the uh, convention and visitors bureau as, oh, that's just a bunch of that's sort of a playground for the white folks, you know, without recognition of how many jobs there are in Charlottesville for poor people, black people, young people, uh, who you know, are, are the servers or the cooks or uh, other, other people involved in the hospitality industry. Uh, so when that, when that industry is in bad shape, it's not, the, it's not the white folks who suffer. It's not the rich folks who suffer. It's the poor people who suffer. It's the blacks and the, the people who, who are, are really the, the low-level employees there. So we need to keep, be very, very in mind, uh, keep very firmly in mind the advice of Senator Paul Songas from Massachusetts, who said, you cannot be pro-jobs and anti-business. And this is a situation where we need to figure out what the downtown needs and be willing to spend some money from the city, perhaps, to get it what it needs and to be able to solve whatever those problems might be. Right now, there is a committee that uh, James Fries, the NDS director, is, is chairing, along with Sam Sanders. Um, Neighborhood look, Development Services. Yeah, looking at the, at the downtown mall, looking at it partly from a physical standpoint of what do we need to do to the downtown mall to give it a 50-year anniversary makeover? Uh, what, is, uh, what is it going forward? But ultimately, I, th- and I think there's some things that we're going to have to do before then that are not physical. And we need to figure out what the issues are that are keeping people from wanting to come downtown. Well, this is something that came up with Chief Cotchis, and, and I want to throw this to you here. Um, and Chief Cotchis was extremely transparent. One of the things I like about you is you're very transparent in these interviews, um, which you're honestly an interviewer's dream here, because um, I can ask you, throw you an open-ended question, and 
I get a really good, robust <laughs> answer from you. He's an attorney. Chief uh, um, Conscious highlighted the panhandling. Um, he didn't say the word problem, um, but he highlighted that he gets a lot of calls for panhandlers. Chief Conscious also highlighted that panhandling is a form of free speech that's protected. But then he also highlighted that there's a fine line between panhandling and aggressive panhandling handling that falls harassment, right. where then the police can get involved. Um, and he said, currently, right now, the police department, which is very much low on bodies, um, and also it's kind of um, throttled with the free speech nature of panhandling, can do very little. He did say this, and I'm not sure if he was being strategic or not, or if it just came up in conversation. He did say, now, if council wants to... Uh, roll out a policy or new legislation that prevents panhandling on the downtown mall, then this would even go for the Salvation Army and the red kettlebell ringing the bells at right. Christmas. We right. can't cherry pick who the panhandlers are. He made that point. Right. But he said if council wants to have this policy, no panhandling, then the police would have a lot more leverage of what they can do to clean up the downtown, so to speak. Because right now, and I mentioned this to Chief Cotchis, my wife and her friends, they're in mid-upper 30s, disposable income, girls' night. They won't come downtown after dark. They're nervous about coming down downtown after dark. And it's others in that boat. So it's a two-part question. Panhandling hand where you want to go. And maybe this idea of a policy saying no panhandling on the downtown mall, your thoughts on that as well? Well, first of all, I think Chief Cotchis is absolutely right as the, the issue of, of the First Amendment analysis, that, that what we cannot do is to discriminate either on the basis of who the speaker is or on the basis of the content of the speech. So, for example, if you wanted to say, well, we'll allow the folks to be out there ringing the bells uh, for the Salvation Army, but we won't allow it allow us sitting there with a sign saying, I'm homeless, please help, that's a distinction we can't make. Now, what we can do, uh, and uh, this is basically the, dis the distinction that I think the, the police department is using and that I think, frankly, the, the people who are doing the panhandling understand, is that if they approach somebody to say, can you give me 10 bucks or can you give me what, that that's a different, that's a more aggressive form of, of, the, of speech, so to speak. And if, if we want to say we will uh, authorize anybody to sit there with a sign, but we're not going to allow them to approach somebody. I mean, that's, that's an action-based distinction. It's not a speech-based distinction, and that may well be sustainable. One of the problems we had uh, probably, I don't know, 10 years or so ago, there was a case uh, that where Jeff Fogle was representing somebody, and I don't remember the details of it, but basically he got a judgment from the federal court in Charlottesville that said, that the particular regulatory scheme that Charlottesville was trying to use was unconstitutional and that we could not draw the distinction. I think the idea was you couldn't be panhandling within 50 feet of the crossover, the, either of the two crossovers or something like that. The cross the crossing, crossing uh, so 4th Street and 2nd Street? Street yeah. Okay. Uh, and that that, uh, that that was a distinction that, that, that did not hold up. And I don't know the parameters of it exactly, but that's the sort of thing we'd have to look at. Um, you know, I, I think that, that what we really would like to do, and it's going to be a multi-year answer here, what we would like to do is to find a place where uh, the people who are presently uh, unhoused 
and many of them sleeping in nooks and crannies around the downtown mall. Because you've seen it, right? I have. Yeah, me too. Um, in fact, I uh, when the uh, the, Haven, the Haven their annual count, uh, I went around with one of the groups that was doing the counting on the downtown mall and saw the nooks and crannies where they were finding a, a warm and somewhat sheltered place to to sleep. Um, so. Uh, my point is that if we want to, we can't make it illegal to sleep. We can't make, unless, and here's the unless, there's a recent court case on this. If there is a place where we can tell them, you can't sleep here, but you can go sleep there, and they won't go, then we, the police can do something. And the police can gradually, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say we're going to arrest them and you know, have them sleep out on Avon Street. At some point, they will get the message that, that, no, you really can't sleep there on the downtown mall, but we've given you a place over here where there's room and you can sleep there. As the one court said, it's not, we can never get to the position where we've made it illegal to live. And as long as we are able to say, you can do exactly exact the thing, but over there, please, and not here, that that is a permissible police action to take. Right now, we don't have a place we can tell those people they need to go to. Right. And so some kind of shelter like that would be a prerequisite to doing anything more about the unhoused on the mall. Would you consider a policy that says no panhandling on the downtown mall? Like legitimately, is that legislation? It, I mean, it, it could be. I, I'm not sure I'd like that. Okay. Um, and I why? Mean, Just out of curiosity. Well, it, it would also mean, for example, um, you know, panhandling could mean any of a number of things, but it, it could include, depending on how you're looking at it, uh, could include trying to get people to sign a petition to get on the ballot. Uh, I mean, that's a situation where people actually do come up to you and say, would you oh, yeah. sign my petition? And it would include the Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts yeah. that are selling cookies. Yeah. And, 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 and may start flirting in the neighborhood of the buskers or the musicians. Right. That's um, right. That are playing on the mall. Now, and some people would say, well, that would be a good thing, too, because those people drive me crazy. But, but others would say that's too. part of the charm of downtown. That's right. Um, one person, last question on this topic, and I appreciate your, your, your transparency. Would, we could manage it by saying no panhandling on the downtown mall unless you get a permit of approval from City Hall to do the interaction you want to do. That's another idea that was posed. There is, there is a whole batch of First Amendment case law on that kind of permitting of, of the speech. Uh -huh. uh, and again, the, the, you can't base the permit on what you're going to say. Okay. Okay. Leave I it at that. I don't think that helps. Okay. Leave it at that. Uh, you're getting props from folks, and then we got questions coming in. Um, Chad Wood has said you are doing an absolutely excellent job. Lisa Custolo on Cherry Avenue, Mayor Snook, excellent job. Um, and can't feel at home at the Dickinson Theater. He, <laughs> um, he's, he, she said you did a fantastic job in, in that play. Um, Janice Boyce Trevilian has said panhandlers and safety are a huge concern for the mall, um, especially for those um, that are, are looking to shop downtown. Um, Deep Throat, anonymous from Bozeman. I'm not going to say who it is, but... I will say you've had many an interaction with this person via email, uh, and I'll leave it at that, um, says okay. this. Um, he says, you are absolutely right about the revenue sharing agreement. Unstable borders do not lead to good policy choices. So we appreciated your, uh, 
answer there, and he has two questions for you. Uh, what do you think of the hospitality in industry in totality? Um, he says the, the hospitality industry seems to drive a lot of revenue with meals tax and the hotels, hotel taxes, mm -hmm. uh, but it also creates a lot of jobs that um, can't afford the cost of living in the city as well. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. And his follow-up question would be UVA pilot program and what we can do to drive incremental revenue through a pilot program. Why don't we first go hospitality industry? Well, I mean, he's absolutely right that the hospitality industry has a lot of jobs that are not very well-paying. They, I think what we're seeing post-COVID is that they're paying better than they used to. I haven't done a detailed study of it. I don't know for sure, but just judging by what, when I talk to restaurateurs and they tell me you know, I'm having to pay, you know, pay, pay my staff a whole lot more than I used to have to, uh, that, that that's, that's definitely a factor. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't have a, uh, you know, a particular feeling about the hospitality industry. It is what it is. Uh, I, I've gotten used to the idea that I'm going to pay an extra five bucks more than I would have five years ago to get lunch on the mall. Uh, that might be light, the five dollars. Well, well, five dollars. Yeah, I, I, I always go for a pretty cheap sandwich. Okay, so even a pretty cheap sandwich is now instead of being eight bucks, is now going to be thirteen bucks with That's tax right. and tip and so for on. For sure. So, um, you know, I, I I think that we have to recognize that the hospitality industry is is a vital part of this community. It's probably the second largest uh, industry in town after the education slash medical side of things. Uh, and it affects people who may not be able to, I mean, let's face it, we're not talking about uh, the, the folks who are looking at $100,000 a year jobs in the hospitality industry. We're talking about the folks who need that money to get by. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we don't, in a knowledge economy like we are increasingly becoming, to have jobs that do not require PhDs and do not require great computer skills and so on. Few and far between around here. Yeah. And, and it's important. The hospitality industry supplies a lot of those jobs. Uh, the second question was about... Uh, the second question was on UVA, the tax oh, rolls, yeah, pilot. and the pilot program. Unfortunately, we have no authority under Virginia law to impose a pilot program. We need to be able to have, I think, a more, frankly, a more robust discussion with the university about, uh, about what they are doing to our tax base. If you look particularly at the area that is boarded, bordered by uh, Emmett Street and Ivy Road and the railroad tracks, that area there uh, is now gone entirely to the university. It is no longer even with the Real Estate Foundation. The one that was with the Real Estate Foundation, they at least paid us property taxes. Right. Uh, but now it's gone over, it's been converted to the University of Virginia ownership. And which we got Data Science School. Data Science School. They're going to have a hotel there. They say, they say we'll agree to give us uh, hotel taxes. Okay. And Conference center. A conference center and uh, I don't know what all else. Yeah, I mean, there. we've dubbed it on this show or branded it on this show as Academic Village 2.0. They clearly are trying to go that way. Boars had their trophy property, and if you, I'm over there almost every day. You see a sidewalk literally being built on Ivy Road, connecting Boars had their trophy property with uh, grounds proper. 
So the game plan would be walk from the trophy property down Ivy Road to grounds proper. That legitimately with the data science school, the hotel, the conference center, et cetera, is going to be like a lawn 2.0 here. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's very exciting from uh, sort of economic development and, and all that kind of thing. It's very concerning to the city because what happens is once those properties get taken off the tax rolls, we don't get tax money for them, but we do have crimes that are committed there that are serviced by our courts and by our police. We do have roads that are running right by there that are city roads that have to be maintained. We do have a lot of other expenses that are generated by that. Uh, and the, mis- the, the, the tax revenue that's coming off the books, let's cut to the chase, that tax revenue, that exposure, or the lack of revenue is going to be picked up by average Joes and average Sallies like us. Yep. Uh, business, property taxes, rooftop, real estate taxes. It has been estimated that if you take all of the properties that are located in the city of Charlottesville and look at their present assessed values and the taxes that should be coming from that, it's about $15 million a year. Uh, from UVA? From UVA. Okay, so we're talking then nearly 10%. We're talking like uh, 8 7% of the budget. What is it, just over $200 million? Yearly 220, budget? 220. So 220, so we'll yeah. call it... Uh, a 6.5%. Yeah, 6 7%. That's a lot. Yeah. And to, in terms of $15 million, you know, if we had another $15 million, there are a lot of good things we could be doing with that money. Absolutely. Um, and, you know... Only, and that's every year. Yeah. Yeah. That's every year, right? Year over year. And, and it would increase. Right. Now, uh, even if you only look at what was the value of the property when the university bought it, uh, when it transferred into the university, I made a list of roughly 40 properties like this. Even that list is about $400, $450 million. So even if the only thing we got from them was the tax revenue uh, of the value of the property as of the date transferred into uh, not not for taxation uh, purposes, that would be four million dollars a year. Uh, it, it, it's the the sort of thing where you know we we look at the core functions of government, and most of the core functions of government we do fairly well, but the the things that we don't do well are things that we have cut over the years because we couldn't afford to do them. One is preventive maintenance or ongoing maintenance. Two is, uh, for example, continuing to expand our sidewalk network. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to try to be a walkable bike-to-bike community and we don't have bike trails and we don't have sidewalks or the sidewalks are so so discombobulated that, that you can't use them as a practical matter, then where are we? So we look at the kinds of, kinds of things that are around the margins that we haven't been able to do and we look at what another four million dollars or whatever the number might be would I mean there are a lot of things that would Massive make us impact. that would make us a quote world class city. Right. Uh, now the university cannot be required to do that, at least not under, under present law, but uh, I'm I'm hoping that somehow or another we may be able to have some discussions uh, with them that uh, we're, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, the biggest problem we've got is we don't really have leverage. Right. Uh, well, the only leverage you would seem to have, I would think, would be the leverage of uh, political pressure, political influence, and the power of the collective body of the populace. If the collective body of the populace, basically us citizens, start saying, hey, UVA, 
let's pony up. I mean, Harvard's, Harvard has got a similar relationship with Boston. There's a number of the Ivy League schools that have a pretty sizable payment to their jurisdictions. Right. So, like, the, the proof of performance is there. I mean, I would say the only leverage out there is the populace getting involved. Well, some states may have uh, provisions. that allow, I mean, Actually, Virginia has a provision for a pilot payment, but what doesn't apply to properties owned by the Commonwealth. So uh, if they were a private institution, we absolutely could institute a pilot program with them, uh, but they're not. So, you know, the, the issue of where the political pressure lies, one of the things that's happened over the years is that UVA has become much less dependent on Richmond for money. Right. And so they are really more dependent than any, anything else on their donors and their donor base and, you know, they're down to, what, 5%, 7% of their budget comes from Richmond, something like that. It's, it's very low. So they don't, it's not like Richmond's got a lot of leverage over them or, or that any elected body has any leverage over them. Ultimately, the governor would have some leverage over them because the governor gets to appoint the board of visitors if we have a board of visitors that is willing to say, and here's ultimately where the, where the question is going to come. If, let's say, we, we were to demand $15 million dollars, Okay, where is that money going to come from? Is it going to come from Richmond? Probably not. Right. Is it going to come from, uh, you know, my, uh, earnings from the endowment? If only if the endowed, only if the people in charge of the endowment want to give it, because the endowment is actually separate from the university. Uh, or does it come from tuition? Where or or does it come out of faculty salaries? Say we're going to cut factory faculty salaries by fifteen million dollars, so we can give it to the city of Charlottesville. Or, and and then the tuition piece would be we're raising the cost of tuition to cover this fifteen million, which is then creating a more homogenous student wealthy body, and it gentrifies the look of what twenty six thousand students walking around Charlottesville look like. Yeah, and so there are all kinds of of, of difficult decisions to make there. And while I wish that we had the power to at least make the one decision less complicated, we don't have that power. We're not likely to get that power. I don't know how we, how we get leverage uh, to, to try to make something more happen. I respect that answer. Um, and also another thing <coughs> to consider, if Charlottesville leads the, ch the charge here, I would imagine a county like Almar would be like, give us our money too. And Harrisonburg. And Harrisonburg, Rockingham, Wise. And, yeah. you know, so it would just set this precedent that you see why the university is hesitant to go down the road. Some stats from you for, from Deep Throat. Um, Harvard pays um, $10 million to Boston voluntarily. Um, the foundation now owns over $2.1 billion with a B of assessed value real estate. That's the foundation. Uh, that's the UVA Real Estate Foundation? Yeah, UVA okay. Real Estate Foundation. And the gentleman that's providing this information works in, 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 in high-level finance, so he makes his living on data. I haven't seen any of his data be wrong yet. He also says this. This is a great stat for both of us. 80% um, of UVA families, the household income is greater than $110,000. And then he says Charlottesville non-student families, so families not tied to the university, only 40% of those, of those households have income above 110K. Well, 
Um, that's a great stat right there. You're getting props from Heather Lamont Walker, who I believe is John Johnson Village's finest, if memory serves correctly there, Ms. Walker. formerly a teacher of one of my kids. That's right. Uh, one of your former classmates, Bill McChesney, is watching yeah. the program. John Blair, who we both have tremendous respect right. for, says Mayor Snook is doing a great job right now. Um, thank you, John, for watching in Stanton. Um, a lot of comments coming in. Let's get to um, High Street. Um, this is a topic everyone's sending questions to me on High yeah. Street. So we got a new brewery since we last talked. Hogwaller Brewing Company opening there in the old Pie Chest location. We broke the news today, which what I, I, I hope is going to be in legacy media, that um, an LLC has bought the CFA building, the old Martha Jefferson Hospital, for $21.9 million. They're going to do a lease back on that building with CFA, so CFA is going to stay here. And Mayor Snook, they're going to build a co-working space, which I think is super cool. So we're starting to see High Street maybe percolate or, or, or search for improvement. I've called High Street the most underperforming corridor in the city of Charlottesville. Maybe Cherry Avenue gives it a run, but the Woodard family is trying to improve Cherry Avenue. We got the, what's the, is it the white elephant? What's the phrase? The, uh... Canary, I don't know, whatever the phrase is, is the uh, <coughs> Wendell Wood, Bo Carrington, Rivanna right. River, floodplain, 200 and some apartments, anything you can offer on that? Well, the, the issue <coughs> that is hanging things up right now is access. Uh, vehicular access, also to a certain extent, I suppose, utility access. Uh, and the most recent, as I understand it, and this has not come to city council yet, it's still in the planning commission phase of things and site plan review and so on, they're now on, I think, the third full draft of a site plan trying to figure out a legal way for them to get access to this property. Uh, the original proposal would have had them making their primary access by going across a property that is zoned R1 at this point. And Virginia law is clear that you would have to have that property also zoned R3 or B1 or something else in order to, that basically the entire property, including its access, has to be zoned the way it would need to be for the whole property to work. So that one didn't, didn't work. And then there was a second proposal where they said, well, okay, if you're not going to let us do this, then how about this? And for various reasons, that was shot down administratively. Now they've got a third proposal, and I, I'm not sure I can accurately describe it, so I'm not going to try, but the access is still the primary issue. And uh, the Planning Commission has said to the planning staff, we want to review this site plan to determine whether this use would be compatible with the, with the comprehensive plan. I think the answer, frankly, is probably not. First of all, because the comp plan has uh, this designated for a single family, not for multifamily. Second, because uh, one of the things that's a part of the comp plan is the Rivanna River plan. Uh, it was incorporated recently, a couple of years ago, and that incorporates the notion that we need to have as much of that land remain as sort of parkland as, as possible. It doesn't specifically say, and what's there on the old circus grounds needs to, re but, but it's, it's pretty close. So it's, there's still a lot of stuff that's got to happen within the Planning Commission uh, to see whether, whether the, um, 
that the proposal could really move forward. Now, the, the second question, and sort of the broader issue is, well, if the city, and I, this, is a, this is a comment that I had made in connection with a different parcel about six months ago, that if it is the city policy that a particular parcel remain unused, then the only fair thing for us to do is to buy it and to use and to keep it as parkland because we own it uh -huh. rather than saying to a private property owner, I know you want to do all these good things and you're allowed to do them, but we're not going to let you do them. Right. We can't say that. Yeah. We really can't. And, uh, but we can certainly say, as we, I think, as the planning commission and planning staff have been doing so far, to say, this really doesn't fit our comprehensive plan. We really want this to remain, uh, whether it's park or undeveloped or less developed, I mean, a number of ways to characterize it, but this particular plan just doesn't fit. Uh, and if that's the case, then we may find ourselves in a situation where we kind of have some kind of moral obligation at least to, to buy it. Now, I'm not saying we're going to go eminent domain and you've got to give it to us and, and so on, uh, but I am saying that it may get to a point where we want to start, start talking about, about whether the, the way out of the problem for Wendell Wood, if he's looking at a project, or of course he's not, he's looking to sell the, pro, the land to somebody else. Bo Carrington. Bo Carrington. If, yeah. if Bo Carrington says, I guess I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to have to cut my losses. Let's see what we can do. Maybe we get to the point where there's some some sales price that could be worked out. I don't know. We haven't talked about it in council. I don't know about what anybody else would have to say about it or even, frankly, what anybody's sense of what a number might be. Um, you are paying with taxpayer dollars um, an appraiser right. to assess the value. Have we gotten that data? Uh, an appraisal has been given to us, yes. Are you able to share at all the price? No. Okay. Won't push anymore. So you do have a third party that has provided a value. Right. And one of the questions, I will tell you that there is a question under Virginia law as to how this is to be valued. Okay. Is it to be valued as the real estate f under which 240 apartments would be built? I would think that would be the value. Or would it be under current zoning uh, and current comp plan use? And that's, that's really the issue, comp plan. Under the current comp plan, uh, where it's to be single family, would you, zone it, or would you value it as 20 acres of single family? Well, devil's, devil's advocate, sake of a talk show here, how Ludwig Kutner and Alan Jean had Ix Park valued, which they're paying taxes on, would be not as if an art park stood there that was run in a ch charitable capacity. Ludwig Kutner and Alan Kajin had their holdings of Ix Park, which I think is the most valuable, undeveloped real estate in the city of Charlottesville right now. They had that valued based on housing potential and apartment potential. <clears throat> so in that scenario, I would think the dirt on High Street should be valued on housing and density potential. This is a big topic. I'm getting emails often from, um, I would imagine you're getting more than I am if I'm getting them this often, from Becca Jones Riley, who's leading the- I've gotten a number from her, yeah, yes. Okay, okay, so you're getting more than I me. recognize the name. There you go, I'll leave it at that. She's sending me many emails as well. She's leading the charge of trying to get the city to buy the land and keep it as a park. The play, I want to unpack this. If the city 
chooses to buy this dirt from the woods to keep a 245-unit apartment complex from happening in the floodplain, why wouldn't the city use the same logic to buy the Dewberry Hotel on the downtown mall from John Dewberry? And then the follow-up question to that would be, the city, if it buys this dirt from Wendell Wood on High Street, is in a lot of ways taking land off the tax rolls, much like UVA is doing, which is then putting more tax pressure on you and me, average Sally and average Joes, to fund the budget through rooftops and businesses and personal property. So the first part would be, if the city chooses to buy this on High Street, wouldn't that logic also suggest buy the Dewberry the same way? Well, okay. Uh, step number one with that is, okay. if we bought the Dewberry, uh -huh. we will now have bought about a $30 million additional cost before anything using will be done. You're saying the construction project? To build it out. Okay. Uh, let's assume for the moment that the steel and the concrete are still in good shape after 15 years of being exposed to the elements. You and I both know that's not the case. I don't know for a fact. Okay. I suspect that it's not. Okay. So <clears throat> if we wanted to buy it, and more importantly, if, if uh, Mr. Dewberry wanted to sell it to us, what would we actually do with that? Recognizing, let's say we've got it now assessed at about $10 million, give or take, uh, so that's, you know, roughly $100,000 a year in tax revenue. As long as Mr. Dewberry wants to keep paying us $100,000 plus inflation, uh, you know, it's not much we can do about him. Mm -hmm. But if we were to buy it and then we say, okay, it's going to cost us, and I've, I've seen estimates of up to $30 million to, to build it out to being something that's, that's worth having, well, what would that look like? What would that end up being? Would we build it out so that we could then, I mean, are we, are we going to spend uh, roughly $40 million on a high-rise affordable housing complex? I don't think so. No, I don't think you would. Uh, and so what would that end up looking like? And I don't, I don't know. Um, I think it would almost have to be um, some kind of middleman transition period where then you're looking to form, and by you I mean the city, a joint venture with, our, with a local developer potentially, and that joint venture local developer potential could involve some tax credits, some sunset taxing of some capacity to help build this project. Um, because right now the out-of-market developer has no skin in the game locally, and as you're saying, you can't eminent domain them or blight it because I don't think it falls under that, and the guy's paying his taxes on time. Right. So you guys have no leverage there. <coughs> right. Um, <clears throat> but I would think that if you buy the high street property from the woods, you're setting a precedent that the city will buy real estate to either keep economic development from happening or maybe to drive economic development. I don't know how folks would see a park. Some folks may call a park on High Street on the banks of Ravana River economic development. Well, I can imagine a use for that entire property that would include some economic development, would include some parkland, uh, and would include really the, the most important piece of it that I would see is that now we're turning the Rivanna River into an asset yeah, yeah. rather than something that gets hidden away behind the trees. For sure. And so there's a proposal, there's a report that was done back in about 2000, 2002, something like that. It's called the Torty Gallus Report. 
and it has a couple of pages on East High Street and what they envision in the few sketches that they provided there was that in the area perhaps right next to Cosner's and in that sort of the northern end of that parcel uh, there might be some commercial development and maybe a restaurant overlooking the river or something like that uh, but that uh, what would be beyond that might be more nearly park. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of ways to look at what the Tortigales report says, but the point is that they're looking at sort of mixed use. They're not looking at it as straight commercial development. They're not looking at it as just it's going to be a park and forget about it. So if we could combine some degree of, uh, of economic use that is river-oriented, that, you know, for example, the Rivanna River Runners group that runs the, uh, the uh, rafting trips and canoe trips and so on, uh, needs a space. That would be a space. A lot of people have said try like a river walk of some capacity where you have like smaller merchants along the walk that are providing food and beverage and music and hospitality type experiences. That's not a bad idea. Well, except I think you've got to look at when we talk about river walk, we tend to think of San Antonio where the river runs right through downtown San Antonio. And there was already population density and economic activity density there. And there are hotels that are built right on the river. Uh, and frankly, I think that a lot of people would look at that and say, that's not really what we want for our river. And I don't mean to, to, to San Antonio. No, but not. It, I, I was down there a couple of years ago and was struck by, you know, you, you've got a river that the river part itself is maybe 20 yards wide and then you've got buildings on each side and occasional bridges across and so on but it is it's almost like going into fashion square mall you know you except that you're in a boat in the middle and you can get off wherever you want to and go to, cool. the, to the different it's cool it's yeah. right but it requires a density of economic activity and density of population that i don't think either, number one, that we want, number two, that we could sustain. Also, the also Savannah right. River uh, through in the Charlottesville area has a significantly greater uh, uh, water flow than the Brazos River down th through downtown San Antonio. Yeah. Anyway. So how about, um, last one on this, and then one other topic, we're mindful of your time here. Um, if you take the land off the tax rolls by making it a park and it kind of seems like you guys are leaning and I don't I'm just reading the tea leaves here of, of potentially acquiring this say that um, I'm leaning that way yeah. I, I have literally have not talked with the other four I understand I understand I you know knowing Michael Payne as well as I do you know which is fairly well not you know not intimate friends but he's come on the program I would think Michael Payne would be leaning this way this way um, I also would think Knowing Mr. Pinkson would be leading this way, Mr. Wade, and I'm getting to know Ms. Perrier. Um, doesn't that just take it off the tax rolls and further the tax pressure on folks like us? Well, I think it's presently assessed at roughly only about a million bucks. So that's 10000 bucks a year in taxes. Now, uh -huh. that's not nothing, yeah. but it's not huge. Well, I guess if what I meant, what I meant is if it was 250 apartments and it had real estate and apartment towers on there. Then it's assessed at a different sure. price point, sure. and it would drive tax revenue, incremental tax revenue, at a much greater clip. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've been uh, quite vocal in many ways in saying that we can't... One of the reasons why uh, I've gotten into a little bit of an argument with some of my more liberal friends is that I've said we can't just decide we're going to take all vacant land and put it to, to housing. 
or even to affordable housing. Uh, because we've got to make sure that we keep a good mix of, of tax revenue sources. Of you know, Right now, uh, real estate property taxes are roughly 44% of our budget. For most jurisdictions around us, most rural jurisdictions, that's more like 80%. Fluvanna's over 90. Yeah. Uh, and so whenever they've got some, some major expenditure they've got to get you know, the money for, build a new school or something, the only way to do that is to raise residential or to, to raise real estate taxes. And of course, in a place like Fluvanna, a lot of that is residential or farmland. It's not industrial. Uh, so it's, what I'm getting at is this. We have a very diversified revenue stream for our, our economy. That's a very positive thing. But if we end up concentrating so heavily on residential real estate that we do not allow for commercial uh, we don't end up with more meals taxes, more lodging taxes, more sales taxes, more beepole taxes, etc. And I, I, I want to be real clear that we, we can't go that in that direction. So. I appreciate that. It's a perfect segue into the next topic, and it's the last one. We'll spend a few minutes here because we could have spent the entire show on it. Upzoning, rezoning. Um, I'm torn on this one, Mayor Snook, and why I'm torn on this one is because of the following reasons. I think upzoning in the city of Charlottesville will undoubtedly drive value for the Macklin building, where you and I are both owners in. Um, upzoning for the city of Charlottesville, I think, will drive tremendous value for HOA neighborhoods in the city and in the urban ring. I live in an HOA neighborhood in the urban ring. Why I'm torn on this is because of the um, infrastructure concerns I have with potentially more density. And primarily why I'm torn on this is because I don't think upzoning is going to breed affordability. I think it's just going to breed opportunistic developers and investors that then expect um, more ROI for their purchase. So it seems to me, from reading, from reading the season, I'm a political junkie, junkie you, you, watching your body language, listening to the meetings that you've cooled a little bit on it. Um, it does not seem to me that your colleagues have. And another KPI I want to throw out there is Natalie Oshrin won with the most votes in the Democratic primary. And she is a very much upzoning champion. And Bob Fenwick, the number one opponent to upzoning, came in last place by a long shot. So it seems the political capital is very much in favor of upzoning. Unpack that anywhere you want to go. Let's start with the last point first. That is that I would not ascribe very much significance to the relative vote totals of Natalie versus Michael versus me versus Bob Fenwick. Um, there was a fifth candidate. Oh, Deshad Cooper. Yeah, Deshad Cooper, yeah. Uh, for one thing, there was a huge difference in the amount of money and effort that was being put into the race. Uh, Bob Fenwick did not have any money to spend and didn't spend any. I mean, he had some yard signs. That was about it. Uh, Natalie had the I – mean, if, if you look at election returns in Charlottesville over the years, it is virtually always true that the leading vote-getter will be a woman. Now, I've, I've shortened that to Charlottesville likes to vote for intelligent women. It is true, and particularly in this particular race where we would have had four 
men certainly and only one woman possibly, uh, Natalie. Cena McGill was the top vote getter in 2019's right. cycle when you and Michael and Bellamy Brown ran. Uh, Mayor Walker, I believe, was the right. top vote getter in 2017. So there's certain data there that justifies what you're yeah. saying. Um, and so it's simply a reflection of, of who, is, who votes in a Democratic primary. And the, the people who were voting in this particular primary, uh, they were being brought out. Many of them were being brought out by the Sally Hudson Cree Deeds race. And many of them were voting for, for Sally on the, you know, the vote of, hey, change and liberal woman and so on. And so uh, it, to that extent, there was pressure from the top to, to bring out a certain kind of electorate. I look at it this way. I mean, personally, I, I figured, hey, I don't need to be number one. I just need to be one of the top three. And so I kind of calibrated how I approached the, the case and the race to be one of the top three without caring whether I was one, two, or three. I mean, you openly said on this show here that you weren't really even campaigning. I really for, wasn't. For a re-election. I, I didn't have time. Right, right, right. Because you have a full-time job and you were already on council. Yeah. So you're just like, I'm not going to really campaign here. Right. And so let's not get overly hung up either on, on Bob Fenwick's low total or Natalie's upper total. I also say that I don't think that most of the voters understand or knew the gradations of Natalie versus Michael versus me versus Deshad. I mean, Bob Fenwick is the only one who really kind of put himself out there as, as saying, No taxes, I don't like no upzoning. I don't like this. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, did you ever hear him say anything he was for? Um, no. And I, I think that worked against Bob because it was, you're electing, and, and I respect any of the candidates who put themselves out there, but you're electing people for solutions, not necessarily electing people to say, this is what's wrong. Right. Anyway, so uh, I, I, my point is... It worked that, against him. My point is, I don't think it's worth trying to parse... Uh, each individual candidate's platforms on, on the zoning ordinance because I don't think that the voters knew or cared. Now, I'll tell you, my own view on it is that what a lot of people are most concerned about with uh, RA, RBRC, and I've come to realize this, is, is it's really not so much, gee, I'm going to have more neighbors, but it's the it's, it's the commercial it's in the, the neighborhood commercial piece yeah. that is really getting people energized and you know the the, 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 the the idea of having commercial in the neighborhoods looks to a vision of a city 30 years from now that we do not now have uh, it looks to a point where you can say as and I, I've, I've spent some time in some cities that have neighborhoods like this. I'll use Pittsburgh as an example, where uh, Pittsburgh really is a city of neighborhoods. You've got a downtown area, but other than that, you've got particular areas where lots of people live, but there's some stores. Lots of people live, but there's some stores. And so with the only real neighborhood we've got like that is out on Avon Street, you know, where there's a, a store every couple of blocks. Uh, we, we don't have that a little bit in Belmont. Yeah, some downtown Belmont. Yeah, 
uh, a concentration right there yeah. in, in the middle. But the point is we, we're not used to that in Charlottesville, and we don't have the density of population necessary. And one of the questions that I asked in the last, in the last meeting was, what are the economic conditions that we think we are trying to promote by allowing commercial in an RA zone, for example? And uh, at a time where people were saying, well, what I really, what I think would be really cool would be to have, um, have a coffee shop down on the corner. Well, think about it. How many people would need to stop by that coffee shop in order to make that a viable alternative? The likelihood of it having success is, is slim to none. Right. And you're basically saying business owners, you hope, because they're putting so much money in to start this business, have done some market research to see if there's the density to justify a 10-year lease, the construction of a building, whatever it may be, and they're going <coughs> to come to the conclusion that the foot traffic and the car traffic is not there to open a neighborhood bodega or a neighborhood pub or a neighborhood coffee shop. And what you would likely get, if you got anything at all like that, would be a business that foundered, which does nobody any good. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm concerned overall that I don't see that the, uh, now the argument for the commercial, we had this discussion in the last meeting as well, <coughs> the argument for is that if you allow this kind of activity, then it provides, it lowers the barriers to entry for somebody who wants to start up his own little business. And, and left structure demands because people don't have to dr drive across town to the grocery store, or hopefully they're not driving to the bar, but to the coffee shop. Yeah. I mean, less infrastructure demands potentially. So there, I mean, there are some reasons why, if you think about what, what Charlottesville 20, 30 years from now might look like, why maybe that's perhaps a reasonable thing to be thinking about. Uh, my, and so my suggestion is that we not put in commercial uh, into the definition at this point, recognize that it can always be added later on down the road if we start to get the greater density that comes from having three uh, potential of three units per lot at this point uh, if we get that increased density, maybe we get to the point where some of that commercial application begins to make some sense, but in the meantime you know we've we 've got this plan that has provided a lot of uh, you know, things that draw a lot of attention that aren't ever going to get built. And I would really rather focus on what's likely to get built in the next 10 or 15, 20 years rather than somebody's sense of, hey, 30 years from now, maybe we could be like this. Fair. Let's close with this. Um, comment from Supervisor Chris Fairchild of Fluvanna County. He says, uh, in the state of Virginia... Recent studies show that for every dollar in residential real estate taxes realized, a dollar and 18 cents is the cost of community service burden. I suspect that pro uh, turning that property into apartments will not bring as much revenue as costs and will ultimately cost the citizens notably more than the loss of the 100,000 it brings in today. Um, so I appreciate that from Chris Fairchild. Chris Fairchild is a supervisor in Fluvanna County, and he's run on a very transparent platform, much like Mayor Snook's platform. And Well, much like Mayor Snook's platform, I meant by transparency. The platforms are very, very different. Fairchild's platform is no housing at all uh, in Fluvanna. That is not your platform. No, and in fact, that, that is a discussion that uh, Charlottesville and Albemarle had very vigorously about 30 years ago. 
there was a group that was really looking to try to limit the population growth in Albemarle County. Uh, my argument on it is people are going to come, and there's a limit to what we can do if we want, I, I, unless we're willing to accept the idea that housing prices will climb through the roof because there's no supply and lots of demand. Uh, the final comment, one more from a heavy hitter. This one's from Lonnie Murray, and then we'll close the show. Uh, revenue sharing has been a constant thorn in the side of Almora voters, mostly because of how Almora was forced into it, and it continues to cast a shadow over city-county relationships. It was created before Almora had a growth in rural, rural area and inadvertently penalizes Almora for rural conservation and incentivizes sprawl. Why not offer to renegotiate the deal to jointly fund mutually beneficial infrastructure provided it was revenue neutral? You don't have to uh, answer that now because we're up against the time, but um, I wanted Mr. Murray's comment to be heard. Um, Mayor Snook, you are great. Um, we appreciate your time. I enjoy the long format with you, um, and thank you kindly for joining us. Happy to be here. Pleasure. Thank you. Our pleasure. Um, Judah Wickhauer, props to you. That's the I Love Seville show. Tomorrow's going to be a doozy. Uh, Laura Foner, the chef of Siren, found out yesterday that she cannot operate Siren anymore in the old Shabin location at Vinegar Hill. So we'll hear her story of what happened. And then I want to try to do a live telethon early next week where maybe we do like a digital bake sale. And the digital bake sale will help drive revenue for her next venture, which we hope she will own 100% of. But that story is going to be tomorrow. You guys have a good afternoon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Very much.